from Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU The Voice of Maui, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Bellingham, Washington, on KZAX 94.9 FM. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually heard by, as usually hosted by, and heard by, Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, I am yours, Angie Cuero, heard on some of these very same stations hosting In Deep with Angie Cuero. I bring this up today because later this hour, I am sharing with you a truly inspiring conversation with author Meg Ellison, and my God, do we need inspiration right now. Uh, Meg is about to come out with a sequel to her award-winning novel, which is The Book of the Unnamed Midwife. But that is not the part I really want you to hear about. Because when I interviewed her, we talked about the book. Yeah, of course we did that. But then we got into her own life story. And most of this is for later. But I assure you, what she has to say has everything to do with the myths about moving up through America's class system, the whole buy-your-own-bootstraps stuff, and what Donald Trump means for women's rights. So that's coming up later. And I know Nicole Sandler, wow, Nicole is back on Brad's show. How cool is that? Nicole yesterday noted the passing of Carrie Fisher. I saw a great tweet today about how best to acknowledge losing her. And that has to do with America's take on mental illness, which is somehow shameful in just about anybody else, but bizarrely is seen as a strength in the man about to enter the White House. It is all coming up later on the broadcast, but right now, let's tackle some of what is in the news first, shall we? I draw your attention to a terrified woman living behind drawn shades in Costa Mesa, California. She has been advised that the best thing she could do is, quote, go out in the middle of the football field, pull out a handgun, put it to your temple, and shoot yourself, or better yet, douse yourself in gasoline and set yourself on fire. Yeah, most or all of her current misery can be attributed to two different things. A viral video of this professor at Orange Coast, California, recorded and posted by a Republican student, and we can almost say plant in the classroom, and her inclusion in the notorious professor watch list. What is that? Uh, Will Bunch noted at philadelphia.com, philly.com, it is McCarthyism for the bullying age. The nationwide professor watch list is intended, I'm quoting him here, to help conservatives identify faculty liberals. Created and promulgated by a nationwide youth-oriented conservative group called Turning Point USA. Now, of course, a Turning Point talking head told Bunch, quote, the intent of the watch list isn't to shut professors up or shut them down. We want students, he says, to push back, 
The goal is to collect all the random reports of professorial comments that have outraged conservatives in recent years and collect them on one handy-dandy list. That's from Will Bunch. So what real-life consequences does this have for real teachers? Pretty much the same consequences you would see if you dangled fresh, bloody meat in front of rabid attack dogs. So let's pick this up with Peter Hawley's story in the Washington Post. For weeks now, he writes, nightmares have been jolting Olga Perez Stablecox awake several hours before sunrise. Sometimes she's able to fall back asleep. More often, she finds herself lying in the dark, tossing her thoughts racing until she is reduced to tears. The blinds in her home are closed. Her door remains locked. And the formerly outgoing professor, a woman who has always thrived by connecting with others, will spend another day isolated by fear, weeping, too scared to walk outside. Then he gets to that clip that was circulated online. This is post-election in her classroom. She called Donald Trump's election, quote, an act of terrorism. That video went viral. And it unleashed, as, as he notes, a wave of violent threats that forced her to end her semester early and flee her home. She's back home now, but she says her life consists of wondering when an unfamiliar car pulls up across the street, whether they're going to take a picture of me or something worse. I feel like I've been attacked by a mob of people all across the country, she said. If they're telling me over and over again they want to shoot me in the face, how am I supposed to know if they're going to do it or not? Then he goes into detail about the video itself. She's a psychology professor. She teaches a class on human sexuality. But she also takes questions, anonymous questions, from her students. And she talks about very personal issues. Obviously, sexuality, very personal. But she noted that there was an uptick in those anonymous questions that she answered at the beginning of every class. She noticed an uptick in political questions. I'm going back to the article here to say many of her students, especially those who were Muslim, gay, or had undocumented relatives, had begun telling her they were scared. Cox, who was gay, told her students she felt the same way. I had, she said, an international Muslim student who told me he was afraid to leave his apartment. I cried with him and felt so bad because he was so alone and so scared. Do you notice, do you notice the two dynamics at work here? And I know you've heard part of the story. I'm going to give you the rest. But here are the two dynamics. We have a woman of compassion and intellect who stands in front of a class on a regular basis and tries to relate to her students as people. And that means acknowledging their fears, acknowledging the many, many facets of their life that may fall outside the immediate and obvious purview of the topic she's covering, and an effort to reach out to them as people and make them feel safe. She said, I read a message from the school president put together a handout for coping with the pain. As a therapist, these are things I share with people who are depressed. I basically said, deal with your feelings and do something positive. Her intent was to help them cope with their fears. Now, here we go. Her name has been added to a controversial website called Professor Watch List, which lists the names of about 200 academics across the country accused by the conservative group, Turning Point, of advancing leftist propaganda and discriminating against conservative students. So it turns out that this video was captured in opposition to the rules, not only of you know, larger college rules, but specifically the agreement that this teacher had with her students. So 
This righteous Republican, as it turns out, employee of and chapter president for Turning Point USA, according to My News LA, broke the rules of the classroom to take this video, which, as the college notes, and the union has also been talking in her behalf, removes all context from her comments and posted it knowing what would happen in the era of viral video. And it got picked up by O'Reilly, who also, with great experience and pure knowledge of what happens in this world of targeted attacks, threw in his two cents about how troubled she is and how much help she needs. There is a possibility that the student might get in trouble. As Gosh, I guess it was back on December 9th. There was talk about possibly prosecuting him for breaking the rules and posting this, knowing what would happen. I can't find anything after December 9th about that. There is the possibility that they're still looking at prosecuting the students for this, but the damage is done. Mission accomplished for the professor watch list. This is the goal, to shut down the openness and the intellectual depth and breadth of what can be discussed in the classroom. By the way, one little coda to this, I am no fan of Notre Dame. I grew up around Notre Dame. There's a whole diatribe I can go into, but just look up the name Lizzie Seberg if you want to find out one of my major issues with Notre Dame. It's a boys' town. But to their credit, a number of professors at Notre Dame have heard about the professor watch list and said, hey, you know what? Put me on that list. And they've been followed by some other professors around the country who are standing up saying, you want to talk about liberal professors? Me? I'm over here. Put me on the list. And I... I hope, I hope that they don't get walloped for doing that. It's a brave thing to do these days. But as we see with the professor at Orange College, Orange Coast College, the consequences can be personal and dire and dangerous. Let's talk a little bit about other news of denial and closed minds, shall we? Let's take ourselves off to Elkhart, Indiana, a trip for which I apologize in advance. <laughs> Having been born and raised about a half hour's drive from Elkhart in South Bend, it is everything that right-wing rhetoric warns you of. Small-minded, racist, anti-LGBTQ, the works. It is where, in short, even the Democrats are Republicans. So there's no need to even go into Mike Pence, of course. Northern Indiana is also in terrible financial shape. You know, it was just crazy healthy during the Industrial Age. You know, that's what it was about. It was about factories. They built cars. They built car parts. They built, you know, mechanical things that don't even exist anymore. It wasn't too far from, from Miles Laboratories where they were making vitamins. It was a little bit of everything, all the industries of which are gone. And now Elkhart, Indiana, is seeing an upswing in fortune which is pretty reliably tied to the work Barack Obama has done in his two terms. But not if you talk to those who are benefiting from his labors. This comes from The Atlantic, by the way, where Alana Samuels has put it up. And heads up, because at the end of this, this is kind of a cautionary note, because those of us who like to see ourselves as critical thinkers, we are all capable of this same level of delusion. And we have to be vigilant about that. If you're going to point to other people and say they are fact-free, they are post-fact, they are consumers of fake news, we got to watch out for the same tendency in ourselves because it's not just conservative, it is human. Let's go to that story from The Atlantic. The city once had the highest unemployment rate in the nation. Now Elkhart, Indiana is booming. 
the once shuttered factories of the recreational vehicle industry, concentrated here, are full of workers. Their parking lots packed with employees working long hours to fulfill consumer orders. Elkhart's unemployment rate had reached a high of 22% in 2009. It is now at 3.9%. The RV industry has now produced a record number of vehicles, creating a lot of jobs. But despite the decisions, I'm sticking with the article here, despite the decisions that the Obama administration made that might have helped Elkhart, People here have a strong dislike of Obama, who presided over an economic recovery in which the unemployment rate fell nationally to 4.6% from a high of 10%. They say it's not Obama who's responsible for the city or the country's economic progress. Furthermore, the economy won't truly start to improve until President-elect Donald Trump takes office. Interviewed someone who works for a dispatch company in Elkhart, who says he didn't help us, he took credit for what happened. Corbyn goes on to say he thinks it will be Trump who improves the economy. It's going to take two terms, he says, but he'll fix things. Shoot me now. Two terms of Donald Trump? I don't think so. At any rate. Elkhart, the article notes, is a case study in how Democrats lost the 2016 election, despite the country's economic resurgence. An improving economy is not enough to get Republicans to vote for Democrats, in part because they don't give Democrats any credit for fixing the economy. Now, here's where, here's where we have to sound that cautionary toll. The bias is true for Democrats, too. Before the election, according to a Gallup poll, 35% thought the economy was getting worse, while after the election, 47% of Democrats said that. So it all depends on who's in charge that you like or dislike. Still, my bias. Anyone who can look at this increase in work, this increase in production, this reduction in unemployment, documentable, huge, significant numbers, and to say, gosh, we can't wait for Donald Trump to get into office and fix this, it's kind of like the article about the coal country workers who voted en masse for Donald Trump and now are scared they're going to lose Obamacare. You just have to wonder what world we're talking about here. Let's finish this up here with this article. She says, I interviewed more than a dozen people about the economy and their politics. I was surprised to find a strong conviction that the Obama administration played absolutely no role in Elkhart's economic revival. People largely admitted the city economy has vastly improved since 2009, with only one person she interviewed believing Obama had anything to do with that. The majority said they were waiting for Republicans to take over to see any meaningful change. Really interesting. People are truly bizarre in the way they can contort their thinking to fit their own political reality. Next, coming up on the broadcast, we're going to be talking to Meg Elison, who is an author of an appropriately dystopian novel that when she wrote it, <laughs> wow, she didn't nearly think how close to the new reality that might be. I'm Angie Coro. Stick around. This is the broadcast. <laughs>
Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. the Bradcast. I'm Angie Claire. Brad and Desi are taking a blessed holiday. I hope, I hope, I hope they're enjoying this rare time off. I'm Angie Claire. Very happy to sit in. <sighs> Let's talk to Meg Elison. She's an acclaimed author. In fact, she's a winner of the Philip K. Dick Award for her book of the unnamed midwife. And she's got a sequel coming out for that book. Oh, February 2017, I think is the target. But when I interviewed her for my own show, which was just within the past few weeks, what really struck me is how important her own story is in identifying how politics and economics actually work. And she is one of those people that you could look at her and say, wow, she is a success of the American economic system. She pulled herself up by her own bootstraps. She was, a, uh, gosh, she dropped out of her family at age 14. She dropped out of high school. She took forever to get back into college. And now she's a successful author, happily married, you know, gainfully employed. She is proof that the American economic system works. And she says, hang on. And she's got more to say about Donald Trump, too. So let's, let's give an ear to Meg Ellison talking to me in a live interview. One thing that's true in the book is that whole disparity between the 1% and the 99% is pretty much gone. Once, it, once everybody's dying, germs don't discriminate, death doesn't discriminate, and much like not having the right skills to survive an apocalypse, also having that assumption of being protected, of having everything not apply to you that many of us have to care about that's gone. I think it would in many ways be a detriment to, to one percenters because they would enter a world with which they have no familiarity and where they may be able to hold on to some of their assumptions, such as no one will put their hands on me or my property is obviously safe even when I'm not watching it or I may pass unmolested through any part of this country because I always have. Those people are going to confront really difficult choices immediately, whereas someone who's grown up perhaps more rural, perhaps more poor, perhaps more marginalized in another way would see the world for being slightly more dangerous than it was, but still analogous. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think an apocalypse of the scale of one, the one that I've written would generally wipe out the 1%. They're just not ready. Right. I really hope that after a long and productive and successful writing career, you write your own autobiography because you're like, I mean, I was knocked out. Starting from the beginning, within the family, you had to deal with some, some mental illness. You were in an unhealthy house. You left at 14. I have been you on left... my own since 14, yes. What did you, can you take me from the day before you left to the day after you left? What, how did you find the changes within that 24 hours? My mother and I did not have a good relationship. Uh, she was, by that point, a single mother. And I had practiced over the last few years, between like 12 and 14, uh, disappearing for longer and longer stretches of time. Uh, she had also helped me to disappear by depositing me with strangers and leaving me there for longer and longer stretches of time. So I had already at that point 
been on my own. It just wasn't official. Mm -hmm. So when I turned 14, uh, she told me she was leaving the town that we lived in to relocate to Bakersfield, which is a place I had no interest in, uh, to live with a friend. It was an uncounted number of times she had done that before in my life and said, you know, we're leaving tomorrow, pack your backpack, we're driving in the car, everything else has to stay behind. Not the first time I'd heard that either. So I told her I wasn't going to go, but that I wished her well. That's a difficult thing to say at 14, and most parents wouldn't hear it. Uh, we were already pretty, pretty far gone, and, and she was not in a position to argue with me, so she didn't. So I took a job as an au pair. I worked for room and board. I tried to stay in high school, and I washed dishes at night in a pizza restaurant. One of those things had to give, so I, I dropped out not long after. And later on, when you were in junior college, you said that you didn't know how to student, which <laughs> really funny. But in, in addition to the fact that you had time pressures and you had to support yourself, were there other things that manifested in high school that just didn't work for you? Definitely. Uh, I had a hard time with the structure of high school. I didn't want to be told what to study or for how long. I didn't want to have to put my best effort towards something I wasn't interested in. And I think that's very common for most American high school students. Like you have a regimented day and you will spend an hour on geometry. And I didn't care about geometry. I realize now that I should have. I understand. <laughs> uh, but I, I, even then, I had a thirst to follow my own pursuits. And I wanted to be left alone, frankly, in the library. And I would read what I thought I should read. And I would write what I thought I should write. And if they wanted to check in on it, I would assume that I was proficient enough to get out of high school. And I was. But the rest of the world wants you to prove that you've done that. So dropping out is not a good strategy. Stay in school, kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it this anyway. This service announcement brought to you by. <laughs> much. So then when I got into community college, it was a lot like high school. For people who went to community college, they know that the standards are higher, but that uh, comportment among the students is about the same. Mm -hmm. And that uh, there would be very structured requirements of me in how to student, uh, how to budget my time, how to screw myself down to a task that I was not interested in, how to demonstrate that I was competent enough to move on, which was something, a stricture that I never thought I should be held to and was unfair. <laughs> Uh, but it was, in fact, fair because everybody has to do it. So I learned painfully and slowly in community college how to be a student again and how to, to act like I cared about it and to tick the boxes, jump through the hoops, and move on. All that someone cares about is that you jump through the hoops. Your d diploma literally says, I jumped through these hoops, and someone signs it. And I, I didn't know that as a teenager. I just thought things were terribly unfair. So being an adult is a huge advantage. Mm -hmm. You also had some uh, evangelical experience in your background. At least you had very, you know, definite teachings about heaven and hell and life and right and wrong. Definitely, yes. Uh, like most, you know, poor white trash kids, I bounced between church and church and church. And, you know, they'd break up because the IRS caught on to them or because somebody was definitely molesting children. Or uh, I actually volunteered for a, an evangelical church organization in Los Angeles when I was trying to find a job to do. And uh, they, a lot of them had the the same flaws as far as their beliefs in heaven and hell and who belongs. And uh, it was not the place for me. I knew that then, and I definitely know it now. Did it provide any benefit for you? Any belief that, you know, there's something bigger out there? Did that help at all? I don't think that it helped prove to me that there was anything bigger in the world. I did, however, meet people who really live the way that Christians say they live, who give quietly and generously and who are kind to their neighbors and are understanding to people who are not like them. They've been a great example to me throughout my life. And, and meeting them and finding out that they're not a myth is very powerful. As far as God, uh, but people are good. Where did your strength come from? <sighs> That's such a tough question. Growing up with terrible parents, I think, forces you to become strong. Uh, mm -hmm. I think most people grow up in a universe where 
parents stand between you and the world and whatever the world has to offer, the, the great, terrible, t confusing otherwise, you have somebody who stands between you and it and translates it and holds some things back and schedules some things for later and says, no, not now, or no, not ever, or no, this is, not, this is my kid and you won't. Lacking that, I think I confronted most of the world very early on. Mm -hmm. And so you survive or you don't. So I figured out that I could stand up to these things or I could run away from them or I could outsmart them. And I think I learned that earlier than most people. I feel like I've been an adult for a very long time. Yeah. I want to point people to the video online of you talking to your junior college because I, I enjoyed that thoroughly and there was so much in there about your life. One of the things that stood out to me is you talked to your fellow classmates, your fellow junior college folks about living amongst rich people. About yeah. how that is different. So how is that different? That's extremely different. Uh, that was one of the things that I underestimated about coming to a school like Berkeley and to a community like the Bay Area. Um, there is a whole host of things that people who grew up with even a little bit of money take utterly for granted. So when I, like if I go to lunch with friends, things are better now and I'm doing much better now than I ever have, but especially when I first came to the Bay, we go out to lunch and the check would arrive and everybody would insist on paying and slap cards down and, and not even think about it. And I would have to very quietly check my bank balance on my phone. I used to do it in line at the grocery store or like the idea that every time you go to the gas station, you fill up your tank. Cause of course you do, cause you're going to need gas. Before 2012, I never did that. There was the budget for gas, you could put $20 in the tank and that's it, that's all there is. There's this, this scarcity versus almost unending resource. And it happens almost immediately when somebody hits what's actually the middle class in the United States, which is to say homeowners, mm. where people have an idea that they have endless resources to draw on. And then just, just on the other side of a, a knife knife-thin line are people who know that they have almost no resources to draw on. I used to wake up on mornings in high school and realize that I couldn't go to school because I didn't have a dollar for the bus. Mm. There's nothing you can do to make that dollar happen. There's nothing in the world that substitutes for money. Money is money, right? So there, there's a whole bunch of people who I met when I came to the Bay Area who had just never confronted an experience like that. I remember my husband John studied abroad in college and we really struggled when we were both in college and we were both just so poor. But we were able to get him into study abroad because his student aid paid for it. And he ran out of money. He was living in a foreign country and I was sending him money by Western Union whenever I could, but it wasn't much. So he confided in his roommate who was there. He's like, I can't go out tonight, I'm out of money. And his, his roommate said, what do you mean you're out of money? You just tell your parents you need more. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> <laughs> the concept that it was a finite resource was totally alien to him. It's like living on different planets with somebody who lives next door. Talking to Meg Elison about her book of the unnamed midwife, which is out now, the book of Etta, the follow-up will come out in February 2017. Talking about how you, in the American way, you, you know, pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, whether that's going to be possible you know, for coming generations, I think. Do you give that any thought as to what, whether people can track your track and say, good, there's hope for me, I can do that? I do think about that all the time, although I want to stress that bootstrapping is a myth <laughs> and that I absolutely could not have done it on my own. I couldn't have done what I've done without programs like the Board of Governors waiver for California Community College students, for the Cal Grant, for the Pell Grant, for the, the continued help and assistance from the kind of people who run California Community Colleges. I had incredible instructors who gave me great advice who spent their own personal time trying to help me figure out what my path is going to be for counselors, for my 
my aunt, who I now refer to as my mother, who adopted me later in life, who gave me a much more stable place to call home for a long time. I was helped many, many ways along the way. Even, even my group of friends, I mean, even when we didn't have anything and we were working retail jobs, we were pulling together what scant resources we had. And I remember uh, there was a summer when I got pneumonia and I just couldn't get over it and I had no health care and it was pre-Obamacare and a friend of mine mailed me Cipro or like a friend who couldn't get uh, childcare and she was going to the same community college we were and we would arrange our schedules so we could pass off the kid and so that somebody could be available. Like I was part of great communities where we helped each other and we rose together. Mm -hmm. So bootstrapping is a total myth, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Use the safety net. And as far as some, it, whether someone can follow and do what I've done, absolutely yes. However, the, the, the continued existence of certain social programs is what ensures that. I mean, you, this is why we fund school lunch and this is why we fund uh, SNAP and, and all kinds of assistance for needy families and programs like WIC and, for God's sake, Planned Parenthood. <laughs> because without these things, people just fall through the cracks into lives that are inescapable. Mm -hmm. Did your goals change? I mean, did it go from saying, I'm going to survive, I'm going to have a place to live to, I am going to write? Or did you always have that undercurrent of, I need to write? I always knew I would write. I've always needed to write. I think there is something in people, in all people, that's not at peace unless they're creatively expressed. And this is done in lots of different ways. Like people find that, uh, that decorating their home or, or making Halloween costumes for their children is enough and they feel expressed. Or like I've seen Pinterest boards that are like, my God, this is a work of art. And that's how people get it out. So free people create art. People who don't create art, I don't think are free people. So I've always been a writer. I assumed that I would do what most people do, which is to work a nine to five job keep a blog, maybe write book reviews and pitch the occasional essay to Slate, right? But I knew that I would always write. I just didn't assume it'd be any part of making a living because the odds are it won't be. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a vicious world trying to get a, a book published and most of the time you hear the word no. So I think that going to Berkeley helped me reset not my expectations but my horizons of possibility because I started to be in the company of people like, I took a poetry class from Bob Haas, former Port Laurier of the United States, well-published, incredibly distinguished man, and more than that, kind, generous, understanding, and just all around amazing human being. But being in company like that and being in a place where people expected great things of you made me think, well, I'll write a book. Of course I'm going to write a book. If nobody reads it, fine, but I'm going to do it. And I, I, can't, I cannot overstate the influence that Berkeley had on my life as far as just making the ceilings on my life a little higher. Mm -hmm. You mentioned early on in the hour that you found a two-person publishing house that was willing to bring your book out, which is beautiful in so many ways. You didn't have an agent. How did you shop around? So my original press, the name is Sybaritic Press, and they're in Los Angeles. They publish uh, poetry and many varieties of smut, and they do a great job at it. <laughs> Um, I had previously contributed to anthologies that they had published, uh, one on Anais Nin, uh, one on Octavia Butler, and poetry, which is most of what they publish. Uh, and since I had an ex existing relationship with them, I suppose I could say I networked my way to publication. We had been talking about other things. I went to parties where they would be there, and I mentioned I'm working on a novel. And they, to their great credit, they asked to see it first. They're like, well, you could show it to us. We are a publisher, after all. And since they don't typically publish novels, I hadn't thought of it. But it was gracious of them to come across and make the inquiry, and uh, we immediately arrived at terms that were acceptable to both of us, and it just happened. It was very lucky to see it happen. How do you, I, I guess I'm just curious. I, I don't have a business mind myself. I have an agent for some of the work that I do, and I thank God because I don't have to think about the money. How does one whose your life is literary, how do you sit down even with a friendly soul and say, here are terms that are acceptable to me? 
uh, that's really difficult to do. It's really difficult to know how to value your work since the world values fiction so little. Yes. <laughs> and because there are such wildly different stories of what advances people receive or what deals that they strike, knowing that I, I didn't have an agent and how small my publisher was, I had very low expectations. Going into my second round of contract negotiations with an agent this time with a much larger publisher, I was... I think all first-time authors have this feeling that if I ask for too much or if I insist on my rights too strenuously, they'll just walk away. They'll mm -hmm. say, you know, there's 50 more like you in line. We're done with this. So I had, to, I had to trust my agent when she said it is common to ask for more money. It is expected that we will lean on them for points A, B, and C. Hang on. I'm going to handle the hard stuff for you. And also, my agent is a wonderful, hard-nosed person who said, you never talk about money. I talk about money. You are a pure artist. <laughs> Oh, bless her. <laughs> She's fantastic. So having having that buffer, having someone who is a, a business person in between me and my publisher is, is quite useful. And it allows me to externalize that question of self-worth. Mm -hmm. I don't have to ask myself, like, am I being ridiculous and asking for more money? It doesn't matter. I'm not asking. Danielle's mm -hmm. asking. Well, another thing about having a wider audience and, and getting the kind of exposure that a lot of authors would dream of is you are more susceptible to criticism. And the, the online world in particular is absolutely brutal. So what have you learned about taking in criticism, discarding what you need? I was fortunate to have an experience in journalism before I started writing uh, books. I wrote for my college paper at Berkeley, which is the Daily Californian, and for a small magazine called Caliber. And in, in both of those cases, they are college publications, they're not nationwide publications, but in the case of Daily, uh, the Daily Cal, it is Berkeley's only paper. Mm -hmm. So there is a great deal of public scrutiny on your work. So I wrote primarily opinion and uh, arts and entertainment, uh, which is a forum for my peevish and elitist opinions. <laughs> So I definitely heard from a lot of people who thought that my opinions were too peevish or too elitist or that I was simply crazy. So I learned to take it there. I learned to subject myself to, you know, the comments on my article or my very first death threat came from the Daily Cal. That was really useful. Also, I'm, I'm the same person basically now that I that I was then. So when they came for me, they used all the, the usual things. Like I have my headshot on my articles. People know I'm fat. That is illegal on the internet. Yeah. Also, I've been the same feminazi basically since I was born, so I've learned to take that on the chin. I've also learned that most of what people say about you is more about them, and if they view you as a, a public figure or any kind of celebrity, God forbid I use the word, you're sort of like the screen for a projector. Mm -hmm. You're just this blank, and whatever's inside them is what they're seeing reflected back at them. So these people, they have terrible unmet needs, and they're paranoid, and they're worried, and they're affronted that their opinions aren't reflected back to them in their publications of choice, and that, that's what they're talking about. They're mm -hmm. not really talking about you as a writer. So yes, I have gotten a great deal of criticism, but I was I was molded by it at a fairly young age through a smaller filter. And once I learned to deal with it coming in on a daily basis, coming through my editor, coming to my inbox, what can get worse than that? I mean, I know that some people, criticism has driven them from their homes and it's netted credible threats. And mm -hmm. I really hope I never end up among those posts, but, but I've seen it all before. There's very little anybody on the internet can offer me at this point to, to startle me. I've, I've been on the internet since I was about 11. I've, I've seen it all. I'm guessing you're probably familiar with uh, Lindy West's story. Where I love Lindy West. She's awesome. And of course, you know, she was being called fat on the internet. She tracked, this is a great episode of This American Life, she tracked down the guy who was calling her fat on the internet. Well, what's your deal? The guy that Lindy West tracked down had created a Twitter account in the name of her dead father. Yes. Her recently deceased father. He was dead like three weeks. She was very close to him. It was an incredibly raw wound. He found a headshot 
thought his Twitter bio was like, I'm terribly disappointed in my fat feminazi daughter. Like it was an assault like I've never seen. So I don't blame her for being hurt by that. She does not have to be bulletproof. She is a person. <laughs> and I am endlessly respectful and amazed by the way that she chose to engage with him as a human being and ask him like, what's wrong with you? What is wrong in your life that you would do this? What were you trying to achieve? What were you trying to fix? And they were actually able to arrive at a place where they could talk to each other. I don't know that I could do that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that my instincts for self-preservation are probably stronger than Lindy's to change the world. And thank God for her. But her example is extremely difficult to follow. Mm -hmm. It's funny how much you're not allowed to get, get away with in public. And when I say get away with, I mean, I'm, I'm overweight, I'm fat. I'm committing the terrible thing that a woman does, which is getting older. It's, it's just really interesting that in our current age, the very act of humanity is is difficult out there. Can we talk about how you wove humanity into your book, even in an apocalyptic setting? I think of humanity as inescapable. N nobody among us gets to transcend it. You know, even even supermodels get diarrhea. Like <laughs> <laughs> the body is with you everywhere you go. And I've heard literary criticism when people ask, like, what does the body have to do with this, or why does your story look so closely at the body? What in the hell do you do without your body? How are you ever outside of it? I've read there's a certain vein of science fiction that runs toward the singularity or runs toward we'll all be vein uh, brains in a vat one day. And I don't think that anybody actually wants that, but what they do want is to be freed of the indignity of getting older, of needing bio breaks, of having to eat food and eliminate and get zits. Like, nobody likes that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's also the driver of our greatest pleasures. Like, what are you without the senses of your body? What are you without all the things that you've seen and heard and eaten and done? What are you without your sex drive? How many books would be on the shelf if we didn't have those? A brain in a vet does not have a sex drive. Yeah. Or if it does, it has a terribly frustrated one. My God. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a horror movie. <laughs> Change my water, please. <laughs> So I, I, I think it is often a criticism lobbed at women's fiction that it's too obsessed with the body or that it's too human or that it's too concerned with sex or aging or body image. And I think that women, because of their experience in all of life, but particularly in puberty, we know that there's no escaping the meat sack. So you have to take the meat sack into the story with you. Mm -hmm. And most of of science fiction, of horror, of all genre fiction, but of all fiction. It's just the tragedy of the meat sack. The meat sack can't live forever. It can't live without basic support. It's, it's going to be subject to the abuse of other people, the abuse of the self, to war, to the terrible things that other people want to do to your meat sack. I, I'm continually confused by other books where it doesn't happen, where no character ever uses a bathroom or has an uncomfortable erection or can't swallow in the middle of a conversation and it makes things really awful. Mm -hmm. It's always there. We just have this genteel pretense that it isn't. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the imagery of women in fantasy, science fiction, futurism, anime. It's interesting that the same pressures that women have here and now to look a certain way, you know, to have a bust that's completely out of sync with how big your waist is, we don't seem to really be moving past that. In fact, you brought up the term feminazi, uh, especially within the fantasy and sci-fi world, there's a lot of infighting about the impact of feminism and not to worry about what these women look like. She just happens to have big breasts, you know, whatever. She just happens to have three men after her. How much impact do you think a series of books along your line could really have? Or is it a self-selecting audience that is already open-minded and you really can't make a dent? Think of genre fiction as a dam. 
The dam's really big, it's been in place a long time, it was well engineered, it's basically Hoover Dam. And it's held up by concrete and reinforcement of the men who say, we came to science fiction to escape garbage like this and to not have to listen to your PC demands and it's always been our domain and it will always be our domain. Those are lies. The Hoover Dam was created to hold back a lake that has always covered that particular valley. The Hoover Dam has not always been there. So what they did was they scrubbed women out of the original Star Trek and they removed the idea of the first science fiction authors and the first horror authors being women like Mary Shelley or uh, uh, Margaret Cavendish. Mm -hmm. And they started off in this idea that all sci-fi and horror and fantasy nerds were the same lonely dudes who were born in the 60s, who lived in their parents' basement, who collected comic books, who women frowned on and would not have sex with, how dare they? None of that is true. That's all fiction, and we've existed all along. We've been part of the canon all along. It is now becoming socially unacceptable to deny those things. The dam is breaking. Mm -hmm. So I would like to think of my books as one small trickle where the concrete has cracked, and I'm, I'm making my own tiny bit of progress, but so are all these other authors, and at the same time, they're making progress for writers of color who write characters of color, who write fantasies that aren't medieval Europe, for God's sake. <laughs> there are great writers like N.K. Jemisin, like Saladin Ahmed, like all these people who are bringing in canons that have always existed and should be able to exist in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. So if we think of all of us as the water bearing down on Hoover Dam that is one day going to retake the valley because it was always ours. And I, I, frankly, I don't have any time for people who insist that it's oppressive of me to consider that maybe not all science fiction epics should have heaving bosoms on the cover. We're, <laughs> we're all here for the spaceship. <laughs> and when I say all of us, I mean the 51% of your audience who doesn't look like you and isn't interested in the boobs. Yeah. <laughs> Meg, you listen to the Book of the Unnamed <laughs> Question from the audience. Can you talk about the relationship styles in the book? Definitely. Um, there is a style of relationship that evolves in the book that's called Hives. And its, it's official term is polyandry. So since there are so few women and so many people who want to be in relationships with women, the most expedient thing to do is to have uh, relationships that don't consist of two people, where monogamy is not expected, and where uh, one woman may entertain many male suitors. I think there are some in the book who have about 40, and some have a much smaller family group with like five or six partners. There are also people who find themselves in what's often referred to as situational homosexuality, like their options have changed, not unlike people who are experiencing incarceration, mm -hmm. who may find themselves in their first same-sex relationships. And in those same-sex relationships, there are the first stirrings of uh, situational being transgender. There's no uh, noun for that. People who are beginning to adapt in their sexuality and in their gender identity to this brave new world. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's definitely a lot of the research that I've done on uh, places in the world where non-monogamy is a more common arrangement. The most common arrangement is, of course, polygamy, which we see all over the world and has been practiced in this country and often leads back to the LDS church we talk about it in America. But if there isn't a relative 50-50 mix, I think it's only natural to assume that people wouldn't pair off 50-50 male and female. They don't do that now. Mm -hmm. And the majority of people wouldn't be able to do it in my world. So I really wanted to examine the way things, even the things we take most for granted that we view as natural and inevitable and, you know, a woman needs men and man must have his maid garbage. I throw it out the window. Say there are no maids. What are you going to do now? I've also had a great deal of, of uh, inquiries about a minor character near the end of the book who's my first trans woman of the story, and who, whose name at the end is Breezy. I've gotten 
a lot of emails, like, what happened to Breezy and are you ever going to explain it? And the truth is I hadn't intended to, but uh, since I'm now working on the third book, um, more stories like Breezy's will be told. In fact, you anticipated my last question, and that is, you know, we talked about the political trajectory that we're on. How does that inform your next book? I mean, it's more important than ever to write books that are outside of what is apparently going to be the norm of Trump's America, or I guess if we're marginally more lucky, Pence's America. It's, it's more important than ever to be loudly feminist, to be loudly queer, to be loudly weird, even if it's a small weirdness, to resist in any way that it's in your capacity to resist. I think it's incumbent upon artists, especially the ones that are supported by the culture, to deliver the kind of art that makes you ask questions, makes you think about the way things are and ask if these are always the way things have been. Um, I, for a few days after the election, like a lot of artists that I know, was just totally paralyzed. I, I had a couple of offers like, would you like to write a think piece? Would you like to write an analysis? And I had nothing to say. I was just terrified. Uh, that's past, and uh, new work is coming. But um, it's, it's going to be more important now than it has been for the last at least eight, but more years than that, uh, than it has been in a long time. We have a fight ahead of us, and this is how I've chosen to fight. That's Meg Ellison author of The Book of the Unnamed Midwife, and her sequel to that is coming out in February. Coming up next on the broadcast, let's talk about mental illness. And we're going to do that with an eye to the loss of Carrie Fisher. And we're going to do that with an eye toward the coming presidency of Donald Trump. I'm Angie Cuero. It's the broadcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. You're listening to the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero, sitting in for Brad and Desi. As I noted earlier, I was pleased that Nicole Sandler yesterday acknowledged the loss of Carrie Fisher. It's, it's always sad to lose someone before their time when she is a walking public service announcement for what it means to be a real woman in America, a woman who does not apologize for the fact that she's aging, a woman who doesn't apologize for the fact that she doesn't fit the classic commercial ideal of beauty, a woman who is open with her struggles with mental illness, that is a loss. That is a real loss. And that's before you even get into the fact that, you know, she she was such a big deal for our childhood, for so many of us. I, I was pretty young. I mean, I was barely a teenager when the first Star Wars came out. And I remember rushing home to mom and telling her, there's this woman this, this girl, of course, we called her girls back then. There's this girl in the movie, and she's in charge. And nobody can tell her what to do, and she tells the guys what to do. I was just dazzled. She was, I, I didn't have the language at the time to talk about how women were primarily ornamental in most movies at the time, especially adventures, adventure movies. I didn't have that vocabulary. I didn't have those fully formed concepts. But as almost every girl of my age could probably see, this was a type we had never seen on the screen. And it was something we could now aspire to because, whoa, look, 
there's a sample out there. There was a tweet in the wake of her death this week that came out from Isaiah Breen. He said, honor Carrie Fisher, and he listed three ways to do that. Normalize mental illness and its treatment. Take life a little less seriously and destroy a fascist regime. Love that. I want to focus, though, on that first point, normalizing mental illness and its treatment. First of all, let's talk about how Americans see mental illness. We've learned as a whole that mental illness like depression, very common, people are starting to gradually catch on that depression isn't being in a sad mood. Depression is a chemical disorder that affects an awful lot of us. And for whatever reason, maybe because it's so widespread, maybe that's why it's one of the first to receive more acceptance. But Carrie Fisher was more than depressed. Carrie Fisher was bipolar. Being bipolar is normally characterized as being absolutely nuts and then absolutely devastated. And like most things that are drawn with too broad a brush, that's not life for most bipolars. In fact, bipolar has several manifestations that are known as bipolar 2 and 3. I'm bipolar 2. I don't mean I'm bipolar also, <laughs> but I am. But I'm, I fall under the designation of bipolar 2. You don't look at me and say, wow, that's the crazy person we see on TV all the time. It means this recurrent depression that settles back to what looks normal. And then the severe depression comes back. It, it's basically bipolar without the manic. And one of the reasons that I'm saying that to you from my own personal life is because Carrie Fisher again set an example that people of a certain age had never seen before. And that is where it benefits one and all to come out and say, you know, mental illness is not for this tiny, tiny bit of people you don't want to be around, of people who are just weird that you can't relate to. We are everywhere. We are legion. That's one of the things that she has left us in her wake, is that be it bipolar, be it depression, name any of the categories of mental illness. And she took that tiny step of making it more normal. So I'm grateful that she gifted us with her presence, with her acting roles, with her example of how to be a woman, especially a woman of age, and how to be honest and beneficial to greater society with your own personal experience. Something that, frankly, she could have kept to herself and risked a lot less of what people might think of her. Let's talk about the other kind of normalization. Now, this is tricky because I'm now moving into an area where you might say, I'm talking about Donald Trump. And I'm talking about a personality disorder he is almost guaranteed to have. Thus, I am polarizing people about mental illness. No, my concern with him is not that his, what I believe to be, what many, many authorities and experienced and qualified people believe to be his narcissistic personality disorder. My concern with him is not that he has that. My concern with his disorder is the very things that define what so many people believe to be his narcissistic personality disorder is appealing, has drawn so much support, is not being recognized 
by the people who voted for him, the people who admire him, the people who even lionize him, and for whatever reason, don't look at that and say, hey, not only is that not healthy for us, that's not healthy for him. This is not a healthy man. This is one of the reasons that we have to understand what is wrong with him, why it matters to us, and why it can get us into so much trouble. Dan McAdam, back in June in the Atlantic, again pre-election, he looked into what kind of decision maker Donald Trump might be granted the nature of his personality. This is much too long an article for me to go into in depth. It also covers what is it about an authoritative personality like Trump, this assumption of rightness, this assumption of being the best, this assumption of having so much to offer, why that is so appealing to so many people. It's a grand article. I recommend you check it out. That's in June in The Atlantic, Dan McAdam. Again, I wish it were being looked at now. But let's look at what he figured out. He says there's probably never been a U.S. president as consistently and overtly disagreeable on the public stage as Donald Trump is. If Nixon comes closest, we might predict that Trump's style of decision making would make would look like hard nosed real politic that Nixon and his secretary of state Kissinger displayed in international affairs during the 70s, along with its bare knuckle domestic analog. Trump seems capable of a similar toughness and strategic pragmatism, although the cool rationality does not always seem to fit. Probably, he says, because Trump's disagreeableness appears so strongly motivated by anger. Donald Trump's basic personality traits suggest a presidency that could be highly combustible. One possible yield is an energetic activist president who has a less than cordial relationship with the truth. He could be a daring and ruthlessly aggressive decision maker who desperately desires to create the strongest, tallest, shiniest, most awesome result, and who never thinks twice about the collateral damage he will leave behind. Tough, bellicose, threatening, explosive. And again, back to normalizing. Now that he is to be our president, Although we see journalists waking up a little bit to what he needs to be called on, in so many small ways, this is being normalized, being made to appear acceptable. And the fact is, we're not capable as a society to deal with something so far outside the norm. We're human beings. We want things to be settled, normal, regular. And we will snap to as often as we can to try to make that the reality. So here's, here's a small but important example. You, you know the story about the Rockettes, which is to some extent settled now. The Rockettes have now been freed to not perform for Trump's inauguration if, as individuals, they want to bow out. Lots of layers to that, including what it might do to a woman who chooses to speak up and bow out. That's for another day. But here's what the union representing the dancers told them in the initial memo about why the full-timers had to appear in front of Trump. That's before they backed off. And here's the important line. You should consider it an honor, no matter who is sworn in. That is how evil is normalized. You should, okay, for one thing, don't be telling women what they should be honored by, okay? Don't be telling anybody that. But what they do in this 
tiny phrase is they make it seem like this is a regular president with whom you might disagree. But because he is going to be the president, you get to perform for him, and that shine is shared with you, no matter who is sworn in. It doesn't matter that he has a fetid soul and is only in it for himself. It doesn't matter that he has the vocabulary of a sixth grader that he has to bring onto the international stage with him. It doesn't matter that we already know he has the compassion of a dead cockroach. You must consider this an honor no matter who is sworn in. That is how evil is normalized. What about the checklists that are now being sought from the various departments? Who is it that has been working on behalf of climate change? Who is it who's been working on behalf of women's rights? You need to cough up those notes to Donald Trump and company right now. Talked earlier about the professor's watch list. Now we're going to have the Donald Trump hit lists. This is not normal. This should not be accepted as normal. Donald Trump is a dangerous man. All the people who, in these very good articles, prior to the election, looked into what is undoubtedly and convincingly conveyed as his narcissistic personality disorder need to come back to us now and say, how do you deal with somebody like that? What do we do when one of those people is in power? While we perform the job of trying to get him out of power, what else do we do to cope? We have people tackling that from a political point of view. We have people tackling that from a strategic point of view. When someone's mental profile is so key to how he will act, we need now to hear from the people who specialize in that. What do we do with this guy? That is all the time I have. We're going to look at a, a number of news stories tomorrow that we couldn't get to today, so I encourage you see, I'm not even going to tell you what they are. You have to tune in tomorrow for the broadcast to find out. I'll be back with you then as Brad and Desi continue their time off. I'm Angie Curl. See you then.